All right, well, welcome to Plum Creek Chapel. We want to open with a word of prayer, and then we'll get started this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this new day, and Lord, just for the bright sunshine, just a reminder of uh, that your mercies are new every morning, and you're a good, good God, and Lord, we just thank you for your grace, grace not only in salvation, but grace day by day as we seek to honor you and live for you in all that we do. Uh, Lord, we, in these troubling times, we just pray that we would, you would help us to, to lean on your word, to, to study it, to get to know it, and to just really uh, live it out in our lives. The more we know your word, the more we'll know you, and the more we know you, the more we'll trust you because you are a faithful covenant-keeping God. And so, Lord, we give you this time today, ask you to use it for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right. Well, um, we are continuing our look at what lies ahead. And as I was thinking about the series this week, I thought, you know, I hope I can prolong our look at heaven and, and the eternal state and the new heavens and new earth as long as I possibly can, because I, I really enjoy uh, you know, this series, and I, as you well know, enjoy talking about Bible prophecy. It's one of my favorite subjects. So uh, I'm not sure what we're going to do next, but then the thought occurred to me, you know, one of the advantages of doing these long series that, that last, you know, one to two years is that by the time you finish, everybody's forgotten what you started with, so you could kind of go back and start over and nobody would care. So I don't know what we're going to do, but we, we, we know that uh, we need to be t talking about a Bible prophecy, especially in these times. Jesus told us in Matthew 16 that we uh, should should pay attention to the signs of the times. He was talking in that context to the unbelieving Jewish leaders who missed the fact that he was the long-awaited Messiah and he was the fulfillment of what the Old Testament prophets had talked about. And so he, he rebuked them because he says, you know how to tell the weather when you look at the sky, but you can't tell the signs of the times. But the principle is still true for us today, and that is we ought to be examining what's going on around us and, and uh, looking uh, at what's happening as the stage is being set. So, uh, you know, as you've heard me say before, 16% of the Bible is unfulfilled prophecy. That's a pretty significant percentage. Uh, so we don't want to, you know, obsess on that portion of Scripture and only teach on that. We want to teach the whole counsel of God, of course, but to neglect... Bible prophecy is to neglect a pretty significant portion of, uh, of Scripture. So that's why we talk about it, and uh, looking forward to what we have to talk about this morning. A couple uh, resources that are available from this past week. On Monday, I had the privilege of being on Stand Up for the Truth with David Fiorazzo, and uh, he always picks the topics, and boy, he picks some great ones. I've uh, been on there 20-plus times now, and I always enjoy it. Super, super guy, nice guy. Uh, loves the Lord and knows His Word, but he, he, we talked about deception, depravity, and the descent of the modernists, and so that's available at, at our podcasts uh, if you'd like to listen to that. And then we had a fantastic um, session this last Wednesday uh, at, here at our midweek Bible study at Plum Creek, and um, in fact, someone emailed me the next day uh, that's not in the physical church but participates online and said they thought that was one of the best sessions we've ever had. And I really thought it was great too. It really uh, warmed my heart. Great questions, good variety of questions, sweet spirit. And I think we went like 20 minutes long because we just had so many questions. But anyway, that's available both as a video, which I encourage you if you want to go back and check that out from Wednesday, watch the video if you can. 
because we, I was able to call up a lot of different slides and charts and things to reference when answering people's questions. And so I know you'll appreciate that. But it's, a, it's also available as a podcast. And speaking of midweek Bible study, remember no, no Bible study this week, no live stream and no in person. We're taking a one-week break. And then uh, in September and October, for those eight uh, Wednesdays in September and October, we're doing an eight-part series on uh, uh, Good News Made Plain, we're calling it. Uh, and it's uh, a series that was put together by our friends at Make It Clear Ministries, uh, Stan Pons and John Sperling and their crew. And John's going to actually be the one leading out. It's a little bit different format than what we've been used to doing, uh, but it's nice to break it up every now and then try something different. Um, but I hope you'll come out for that. Uh, starting uh, September 7th, uh, as it's just going to be an interactive time of learning different tools and resources that will help us uh, talk to other people about the Lord, just naturally, instinctively, not something that you have to plan and study. It's just basically good little uh, you know, triggers to kind of help uh, engage people in spiritual matters, specifically uh, the good news that Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. So that starts September uh, 7th. And then I wanted to mention we finally now have available Spirit of the Antichrist Volume 1 in e-reader format, PDF format. So if that's something that would interest you, you can check that out at uh, notbyworks.org. Uh, speaking of that, Volume 2 is well underway. We've uh, done <coughs> the sort of the first pass-through of edits for the first uh four chapters it's 15 chapters in total and i am i am so excited about this book i mean it, it is going to be so uh if no one else benefits from it that other than me it's it's worth it because it's going to have you know two volumes now with this volume one and now volume two a, a set that covers a ton of material relevant to what's going on in this battle between god and satan and the ultimate battle uh to take over uh, the kingdom of this world. So uh, really looking forward to that being out, still on target to be out in October, November, and pray pray that I'm able to, to kind of get meet that deadline. So and pray now, begin praying now that the Lord uh, will use it. So uh, with that, let's uh, turn our attention once again to uh, the eternal state. So we're in Revelation 21 and uh, 22. And as a reminder, if you look at this uh, end times, chart everything you see on the far right over here uh, in purple is what we're talking about uh, remember the uh, the first thousand years of the kingdom is on the old earth we call that the millennium and that's discussed in revelation 20 so you can see that where i'm pointing here with the pointer and then we finished our discussion of that some time ago and we've been talking about the eternal state and you'll hear this referred to as the eternal state and also as the new heavens and the new earth. Um, and it's, it's basically the eternal dwelling place of the redeemed. And so uh, if you look at uh, the similar chart, I've kind of got highlighted in yellow. After Christ comes back, uh, he establishes or inaugurates, I should say, the kingdom. And, and that kingdom is, is what I call the messianic kingdom. And it will continue after the thousand years uh, in perpetuity on the old heaven uh, and the old, I mean, in the new heavens and the new earth, the old heaven and the old earth is destroyed. So we left off last time with uh, talking about the new Jerusalem, and the, we spent some time talking about why the new Jerusalem is not present in the millennial phase of the kingdom, but it, like all of the new heavens and new earth, comes into play, I believe, 
it with the uh, new, new creation. And so uh, what I want to do now is turn our attention to several passages uh, in Revelation 21 and 22 that really describe the new Jerusalem. Uh, uh, Jerusalem, just for background, has always been God's holy city. Uh, holy meaning set apart, one of a kind. Um, the holy land is, is God's set apart land. It's uh, his special piece of real estate. Um, we talked some time ago in this series about the land promised to Israel, and we looked at a number of Old Testament passages that reiterate how this is, God, God says again and again, this is my land, my land, my holy city, my place, my, you know. So uh, there's something special about uh, that uh, land over there, what we call the Holy Land or the Land of Israel. And it certainly, uh, even if we didn't have the biblical record, it certainly would get our attention that after all these years, it seems like it, it's, it's constantly in the news and all of the different competing nations seem to have their sights set on Israel. I mean, think about it. Nations come and go. Nations change names all the time. Um, and yet, when Israel was reestablished as a nation uh, in 1948, uh, it was like, you know, earth-shattering news. I mean, everybody was talking about it, believers and unbelievers, Christians and other religions. And it was, it was a big deal. And, of course, then there's been battle after battle after battle uh, with neighboring lands. Uh, the, one of the climactic battles in end times prophecy, the Battle of Armageddon, takes place over there. Um, so, you know, the, 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 uh, one of the wars that leads up to the tribulation, and I believe the one that catapults the future Antichrist into world fame, the Battle of Gog and Magog in Ezekiel 38 and 39, it takes place over there as nations come against Israel. So it should not surprise us then, given the history of Israel, that uh, when all is said and done and time shall be no more, Israel is center stage. And uh, that is where the presence of God is in the new heavens and the new earth. And so the description is in keeping with that that we read about in the book of Revelation. Uh, it's a, a place of splendor, uh, like a stone of crystal clear jasper, what we read in verse Revelation 21, 11. Uh, the walls around the city <clears throat> are 72 yards high. Now that's pretty tall walls, you know. Um, I don't think uh, people will be able to sneak into Jerusalem around those walls, right? Um, the gates are pearly gates. That's a biblical concept. Uh, each named, uh, each of the giant pearls named for the 12 tribes of Israel. So you see, once again, uh, if you don't think there's a future for national Israel, if you think, uh, as so many do today, that the church, you and I, have replaced Israel in God's plan of the ages, replacement theology it's called, then you have to discard most of the book of Revelation, uh, if not, well, all but the first three chapters, really, because it's, you know, uh, is, is, you know Israel takes a central place in the end of the story. So God's word means what it says. There's no indication that he's using Israel to mean anything that, other than what it's always mean. That meant that place... Uh, you know, geographically uh, that constitutes the Holy Land. The 12 foundations have the names of the 12 apostles written on them. 
look at that fourth or fifth point there. Um, the dimensions. Now this is interesting. In fact, let's read it. Verse 16. Uh, maybe you've, uh, you've studied this before, but in, in chapter 21, verse 16, the city is laid out as a square. Its length is as great as its breadth. And he measured the city with the reed. 12,000 furlongs, its length and breadth and height are equal. Now let's think about that for a second. What other city do you know of that is described in terms of length and width and height? It doesn't really make sense, does it? And it's led to a lot of speculation. It's one of those passages in Scripture that I can't wait till we get there to see what was really meant. Um, the dimensions that are described there all being equal could fit the criteria for a, a cube, right, or uh, a pyramid, right, with height and length all being equal, could that, that would be the correct description of a pyramid. So we don't really know because the text doesn't say which is which, and it's also hard for us to understand how a city could have could be 1,500 miles high, right? And so some uh, Bible experts have kind of looked into the, the you know, the, the culture and the grammar and the history and the context, and that's why you have some people saying, well, it's a pyramid, and they try to make a correlation to that, some of the other ancient Near Eastern ziggurats or pyramids, um, and that this is sort of the preeminent picture of the Trinity and things like that. Um, You've got others focusing in that it could be a cube, and they'll uh, make uh, analogies or comparisons to like the Holy of Holies and the tabernacle, which of course was a cube, right? Um, all of that could be true, and I, I think you know the easiest takeaway is just to say this is going to be a magnificent city like no other. In the same way that the millennial temple described by Ezekiel in chapters 40 to 48 is unlike any temple on this present earth up to that point. The eternal temple, the, the eternal city of Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, will be unlike anything we've seen before. My, uh, you know, best guess, if I had to, if you ask me for my interpretation of this, and don't shoot me if you disagree, because it is a difficult passage, but I hearken back to our study on Bible study methods, which I've taught for years at in the college and, and seminary levels. And one of the key principles for identifying figures of speech is if, if the thing being described seems out of character with, you know, with reality, then it's probably a figure of speech. And so to the extent that we never describe cities as having you know, a height, and it would be hard to picture what, what does that mean exactly, I think this is just a figure of speech describing the splendor of the city. I think it's going to be a real city, but to think of a city as having a dimension of, of, of height, it's hard to say. But I could be wrong on that. It could be, I mean, much of what we read in, in the book of Revelation, especially when it deals with numbers, is to be taken literally. So I, I definitely am not going to die on this hill, no pun intended. Uh, but, you know, to me... It's just a, I don't think it's necessarily a pyramid or a cube. It's just describing the, the magnificence of the city. Any thoughts on that or comments? Anybody else ever put any thought into it? Yeah. 
I've read some people say that the city will be in the air. Obviously, it will be in the air, and then you know, so it won't have foundations. Thus, the height. Yeah. So, maybe, so, so the comment is that if the city is in the air, that would be a reason for describing the height, except that the language doesn't indicate that it's so, so much higher off the earth. It's sort of a dimension of the actual city, like, you know, because it says it's breadth, height, and width. They're all the same length. Um, but, I mean, again, that could be. And, and, of course, we talked last time about how a lot of Bible scholars, especially old school ones, thought that the new Jerusalem would already be in place during the millennial phase of the kingdom. So let's go back to that chart. So that first part of the Messianic kingdom there, that it was going to be a satellite city hovering above the earth, and then after the destruction of the old heaven and the old earth, when the new heavens and the new earth start, then it sort of comes down and takes its place. But I gave several reasons why I don't think that's the case, uh, you know, the primary reason is just that the new Jerusalem, in keeping with the new heavens and new earth, kind of go together, they, and they're described together in Revelation 21. So it doesn't seem like you have the new Jerusalem until you have uh, the new heavens and new earth. But yeah, I mean, that, that could be, uh, and again, I'm not discounting the fact that this could be a literal description, and that obviously all things are made new. There's a lot of... of uh, new territory here with the curse of sin removed and God's perfections. Most people agree whether it's a pyramid or a cube that it is, it's symbolizing God's perfection, you know, perfect length, width, height, and so forth. Uh, and so that would, that would certainly be a possibility. Yeah. Um, I was also thinking that uh, since we are in the, new, the phase of the new heavens and the new earth, maybe all bets are off about how we would perceive that from our standpoint in the in the XYZ world yeah. that we're in now, whereas the new heavens and the new earth may and and the beings that are in that that yeah. realm are also in glorified bodies, so things may just look a lot look different. Yeah. Everything may be just different. That yeah, so I mean that's certainly something to keep in mind is that we are now are into the phase uh, where we have uh, transcended time, space, and matter, uh, for sure time and space, so like we talked about Wednesday, and so it's hard for us to envision something that's not linear, right? That's not today, tomorrow, the next day, next week, next decade. Um, so we are so prone to think in terms of time, and as we looked at Wednesday night uh, in Romans 11, you know, Paul describes that the fact that, you know, it's God is, is some of the things that God's, from God's perspective are impossible for us to understand, right? Um, but that said, I want to be careful because God's revelation to mankind uh, gives us everything he wants us to know about himself and, and his plan of the ages, and it uses language and grammar and syntax to do that. So it's not like when you get to chapters 21 and 22 of Revelation, somehow the rules of grammar change. Words still have meaning, and I think um, God intends for us to understand it. Um, but the question really is, is this a figure of speech? Like as we said, I think there will be really 12 giant pearls and really 12 foundations. No indication in the text that that's a figure of speech. 
uh, and you can and it, and it doesn't violate any rules of figures of speech because it, it makes sense. But when you get to the, the dimensions, that's where it really becomes puzzling to me because, um, again, it's hard to describe something physical, which he is describing something physical, uh, that normally doesn't, isn't cube-shaped, right? You know, we think of boxes or, you know, things like that as having a cube, but not a city, right? But again, we're in the new heavens and the new earth, which is essentially what you're saying, and so it absolutely could be God's way of saying this is the beauty of the new Jerusalem. Any other thoughts? All right, so then we've got uh, the city itself is of pure gold. So you've heard people talking about walking the streets of gold, right? And the pearly gates, those are um, sort of uh, metaphors for heaven that are built on the, the reality and the facts of the biblical record, right? Uh, again, streets of pure gold, um, temple, a God and the Lamb of the temple. Let's look at that. That's a fascinating reality. Um, when you look at verse 22, he says, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Right? He goes on, the city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. Now, uh, you've heard me talk all, often about how when Christ takes the throne, when he returns, he will reign forever and ever. We see that again and again in Scripture. And that's the reason, by the way, let me put the end times chart back up, that I diagram it this way. Uh, a lot of times people will refer to the millennial kingdom which sort of implies that the kingdom is only a thousand years, millennium, of course, meaning a thousand. But we know from a variety of passages, and I'll just read a couple of them here, uh, Old and New Testament alike. Let's start in Daniel 7. It says um, in verse 13, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. That's... Jesus Christ, the eternal Son, coming to the eternal God, the Father. And then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom his, uh, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Now listen, his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. Uh, and so... Uh, and then, you know, we see this time and again in the New Testament. For example, in Luke, when uh, Gabriel announces the birth of Christ to Mary or that she's pregnant, he says in Luke 1.31, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will call, be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So again, when Christ takes the throne, uh, he's going to reign uh, you know, perpetually for all of eternity. Jesus describes that moment when he takes the throne in his Olivet Discourse when he says... In Matthew 25, 31, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. Um, 
We could go back all the way to the Davidic promise, 2 Samuel uh, 12, when we see the, the, remember in the Abrahamic covenant, you've got, in Genesis 12, you've got references to land, seed, and blessing. Uh, the land that Abraham's going to be given will be his. Uh, the, he will have a, a perpetual seed, and then the, it ultimately involve blessing of the whole world. Well, those three elements of that unconditional Abrahamic promise are reiterated through three subsequent unconditional covenants. The one about his seed is reiterated. We call it the Davidic covenant in Second Samuel. Uh, I'm sorry, First Samuel, chapter twelve. First Samuel. I'll get there in a minute. It's I'm sorry, it's 2 Samuel 7, 12 to 16. I'm getting the references all messed up in my mind. 2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning in verse 12. And he's talking here to David about first in the first place his son Solomon, who's going to, of course, take the throne and build the temple. But notice he goes in verse 16, and your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you, your throne shall be established forever. So, again, the kingdom is an eternal kingdom. So, that being said, uh, what do we do with the fact that what we just read in uh, Genesis, I mean in Revelation 21, that the God and the Lamb are the temple? Well, again, it's, it's one of those examples where the Bible never contradicts itself. Just because the temple is the Godhead, Jesus is part of the Godhead. So it's still his rightful throne and his uh, kingdom. Uh, the mediatorial aspect of it, the one who's actually ruling over it, it goes from being a singular ruler in the millennium, Jesus Christ ruling with a rod of iron, to the Godhead ruling in the kingdom. But Jesus is still a part of that Godhead. So do you see the, the tension that I'm trying to resolve here? Is that you know the Bible on the one hand says Jesus reigns forever, but then you get to the new heavens and new earth, and it says it's not just Jesus, it's the Godhead, right? Well, those two things are not incompatible, and it really speak directly to the, the Trinity, the oneness of God, that Jesus, like Jesus said in John 10, I and my Father are one. Yeah? I read something this week, 1 Corinthians uh, 15, uh, starting with verse 20, about uh, I love that. when all things are, are, are finished, Christ becomes subject then... Yeah, let's look at that. 1 Corinthians 15 is a fascinating uh, passage. Let's start in verse 20. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Again, falling asleep is a metaphor for death. Um, it's a euphemism. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ at his coming, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and all power, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death, for he has put all things under his feet, but when he says all things are put under his feet, it is evident that he who puts all things under him is accepted. <laughs> In other words, he's not putting himself under himself. You know, he is God. Um, now, when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. 
great passage, great cross-reference to just what we were talking about. I wish I had thought of it myself. Um, if you go to Hebrews, another uh, parallel passage here. Um, well, how does that uh, uh, you know, play into the Trinity equal parts? And yeah, good question. So how does that play into the Trinity and so forth? Well, remember, Jesus is speaking here, you know, or Paul is speaking here about Christ's earthly ministry and the kingdom on earth. And so that's what I was referring to when I talk about the mediatorial aspect. Mediatorial means uh, the one who mediates or, or is in charge, if you will. And so the mediatorial aspect of the kingdom is the first thousand years that's going to be Christ. Uh, and so, but ultimately, you know, for throughout the New Testament, we see references to Jesus doing the will of the Father. God sent the Son into the world to save the world from sin. Jesus was obedient to the will of the Father, not my will but thine, Jesus said, that kind of thing. So there is a sense in which Christ is doing the will of the Father, yet Christ is still one with the Father. And that's one of those biblical antinomies that are difficult for us to, to really get our hands around. Um, so there's no real tension there at all. Ultimately, it's God's kingdom. God created the world, but Colossians and Hebrews both tell us Jesus created the world, right? Which is it? So it's both. Uh, because God, Jesus is God. Uh, so I wanted to see if I could find um, in Hebrews here. Um, yeah. So in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5, the writer of Hebrews, who's writing here in the late 60s AD, uh, Nero is the Roman emperor at the time. He's intensifying his persecutions against Christians. And so the writer of Hebrews is writing to a Jewish Christian audience to encourage them to keep on keeping on to hang on to the faith don't give in because many of them were abandoning the forsaking of themselves together Hebrews 10 25 they were abandoning Christianity to, to retreat back to the safe haven of Judaism uh, because Judaism was still in cahoots with Rome at that time uh, and so that's the context here but notice he says for he has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels. They, had, they were worshiping angels. By the 30 years into the church age, angels became a kind of a hyped up uh, obsession with a lot of people. Gnosticism was, was uh, running rampant. And so, but the key here is he has not put the world we speak. That, so the whole book of Hebrews is speaking about that future kingdom. One of the motivating factors for them and us today to persevere and to suffer persecution uh, while keeping the faith is the reality of the coming kingdom someday, that a better day is coming. Now he goes on, uh, but one testified in a certain place, I think this is Psalm 8, if I remember right. Uh, no, Psalm 100 and... Well, I can't see it, but what is, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man... Someone look that up and see where that's coming from in your cross-reference. That you take care of him. Now watch this. You made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him. Here he's talking about mankind. Okay, the Son of Man, not capital S, but you and I. What is man that you are mindful of him, uh, that you take care of him? You've made him a little lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands and have put all things in subjection under his feet. Mankind, the highest pinnacle of creation, like we talked about Wednesday, it has dominion over the earth, or supposed to anyway. But notice the writer of Hebrews says in verse 8, For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him, but we do not yet see all things put under him. 
So in the kingdom someday, we're going to rule and reign with Christ, and we will see all things made right in this world, and we won't, be, we won't find ourselves you know, worshiping animals, worshiping trees, worshiping nature. We won't have earth days or earth summits and those kinds of things. We're going to be rightfully the co-heirs with Christ of the kingdom someday. So all this is just to say that you know, God's word you know, fascinatingly ties everything up in a nice neat bow and returns full circle to that pre-fall state that we saw in the garden before sin entered the world. And I've got that uh, chart that I often show that kind of shows us the, the progression here from creation in the image, uh, you know, imperfection and with mankind in the image of God all the way through the fall and then through recreation and redemption. And so uh, that, you know, that's why it's so frustrated me when people ignore the book of Revelation because it is the end of the book. I mean, it's the end of the story. It tells us how things end. Why would you want to ignore uh, this fascinating end to the story? Yeah. What happens to the Holy Spirit as part of the Trinity at this point? Yeah, so the, we know from comparing Scripture, the question is what happens to the Holy Spirit? Well, nothing happens to him because, of course, he's immutable. He's God. He can't change. Um, and that's a, that's a study that would be worth... Uh, walking through together sometime because I had a conversation when we were up in the Pacific Northwest recently with someone who I think really misses misses the boat on the role of the Holy Spirit. But let me answer your question and then I'll digress for a moment. So God eternally exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All of the attributes of God are true of all three persons of, of the Trinity. So the Bible doesn't have to always mention each one of them for it to be true. Um, so it's it, clearly by comparing scripture with scripture, the clear teaching of God's word is that God eternally exists in three persons. So if we see the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple, that by definition must mean the Holy Spirit is the temple as well. In verse uh, 22, makes sense. I mean, they're they're inseparable. Yeah, I just wonder because we have both God and Jesus there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the comment is, since we have uh, unmitigated access to God, the Father, and God the Son, like we talked about last Sunday, that that He shall be, I shall be your God, you shall be my people. That intimacy, that final connection. You know, then do we really need the Holy Spirit? Well, that type of uh, you know question or comment, I think. Is, is based upon our understanding of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the present age. Remember, the Holy Spirit is eternal. He, he has all kinds of things that He has done, as we read you know, from Genesis to Revelation. In the Old Testament, He anointed kings and prophets. He came upon certain people. He moved, uh, you know, you know, and so forth. So uh, the unique ministry of the Holy Spirit in the present age is to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, Jesus said in the upper room, and then to permanently indwell every person who places their faith in Christ Jesus. That's new. That's unique. So he, he has a lot of ministries, and certainly in the church he has ministries such as gifting individual members in the church with unique gifts for the purpose of serving the body of Christ, the church. Um, but one of the 
uh, passages, and this leads to the conversation I had uh, recently, that I think people misunderstand is in uh, uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Uh, and this is where Paul is describing the future Antichrist, and he refers to him as the man of sin and the son of perdition who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God that, or that is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God showing himself that he is God. That's verse 4. And this is referring to the abomination of desolation that Daniel talks about and Jesus talks about in that future time when the Antichrist himself uh, demands worship and declares himself to be God at the midpoint of the tribulation. But notice uh, Paul says in verse uh, five, 6, Now you know that what is restraining, now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time, he meaning the Antichrist, something's restraining him. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. That's one of the key uh, premises of my book, Spirit of the Antichrist. And I've been knee-deep working on volume two, and it just, again and again, I'm, I'm amazed to see the manifestations of the Spirit of the Antichrist, 1 John 4, 3, that are already at work among us. And Paul is echoing the same thought that John did when he says, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. In other words, even though the Antichrist is not here yet, and he won't be unveiled until after the rapture, that spirit, that mystery is already here. But he makes, again, a reference to this idea of restraining. In verse 7, he says, only he who now restrains, will do so until he is taken out of the way. Now, in the New King James, Second uh, Thessalonians 2.7, the word he is capitalized there, referring to the Holy Spirit. And so, I've heard people teach that during the tribulation, when the Antichrist is reigning, the Holy Spirit is off the earth. Well, again, that violates the teaching of Scripture that the Holy Spirit is God and God is omnipotent. I mean, omnipresent. You can't be omnipresent and not on the earth at the same time. That would be a contradiction. So when he says taken out of the way, what does he mean? Well, he's talking about one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit, which the Holy Spirit being a, you know, permanently indwelling every believer in this present age, the church, the Holy Spirit through the church, constitutes a restraining influence on sin today. I mean, think about it. Uh, as bad as things are, just think how bad it would be if it wasn't for the church. Now, I realize the church is, you know, in fulfillment of prophecy, losing some of its potency and effectiveness because we've become apostate by and large. But there's still a remnant, and there are still believers who follow the convicting leadership of the Holy Spirit. They they uh, do what he says. They stand for truth and righteousness. They come against evil and sin. And they speak out for what's right. We see that in America here in the last couple of years when there's been such a marked slide toward abject immorality with the gender issues and all kinds of stuff. And, and, and yet God-fearing believers and Christians are trying to take a stand against that. So we see that. So what he's talking about is that after the rapture, when, when the church is taken off this earth, the Holy Spirit, that's the he there, his influence in and through the church will be removed. But he's not removed. He's God. 
He's here. He's still going to be, you know, convicting people and uh, doing what he's doing. He's part of the Godhead. So we need to understand our theology uh, proper, our understanding of the Trinity, that God eternally exists in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And while they have different ministries and roles to play, obviously the whole uh, the uh, second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, who is the eternal Son of God, came to earth in fulfillment of God's plan of the ages, born of a virgin, put on human flesh, uh, the hypostatic union. He was fully God and fully man. He lived a perfect, holy, sinless life, uh, ultimately died for the sins of all the world, rose again the third day, defeating death, hell, and the grave, and is now ascended back to the right hand of God the Father. But that doesn't mean that Jesus changes. He is immutable, just as the Holy Spirit is immutable, but he takes on different roles in God's plan of the ages. So, I mean, it's a great question, uh, going back to Revelation 21, uh, you know, but the Holy Spirit is absolutely still very much alive and active and, and, and working, you know, in, during the eternal state. Any other questions or thoughts on that? Yes? I have a question actually going back to there not being a temple. Yeah. 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 So the, that's a great question. Uh, Hebrews makes reference to the shadow of the temple on earth as compared to the substance or the reality of the eternal temple in heaven, uh, not built with hands, not built with human hands. Right. Well, that's what he's talking about here. I think so. It's it's the the earthly brick and mortar temples that we see going all the way back to Solomon and then Herod and then you know uh, ultimately the Antichrist temple, then the Millennial temple. Uh, are all a picture of the ultimate reality of this glorious temple and the Jerusalem. So uh, there is a corresponding reality that casts the shadow, if you want to use that metaphor. Uh, Paul talks about that also in Colossians, uh, but Hebrews uses the same uh, term that these are, uh, you know, what, what we see here that the uh, readers were so obsessed with the Judaistic temple is just a shadow compared to the reality. So absolutely, there's a temple, but but this is it. I mean, this is the temple, right? Um, this is the eventual, you know, uh, I guess, uh, manifestation of the temple in in uh, in heaven. And so, what that looks like again, we're getting into where we're trying to define eternal things in our limited knowledge of you know, descriptions, and, you know, this could be kind of like what Mike was saying, maybe maybe the, the, the city of Jerusalem is a cube or a pyramid, and the fact that we've never seen that on earth is just because the earth is not perfect, um, but, uh, but so I guess, you know, you, the tension would be, how can Jesus be the temple and go into the temple in heaven, right, is that kind of what you're getting at? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, uh, it's possible that the form of the temple, even in heaven prior to the new heavens and new earth, is different. Uh, that's hard for me to to go there because, as we talked about Wednesday, the the dwelling place of God is outside of time, and it's the third heaven, the highest heaven, the, the abode of God, and it doesn't change. It's not it's not a created thing. It's an eternal thing. So. I think we just have to let the text speak where it speaks. And, you know, we believe what the writer of Hebrews says Jesus did. But here we see the description of that temple in, in eternity.
Good question. This is such a smart group. Yeah. No pressure. No. <laughs> Yeah, so the comment is about the lake of fire. So let's be clear, the New Jerusalem is abs absolutely real, and it is, you know, the eternal dwelling place of the redeemed in, you know, perfect harmony with our Creator once again. Um, all we are saying is that some of the descriptions are so magnificent that they really uh, transcend our logic and our ability to get our hands around them. The lake of fire is quite clear. So um, let's look at a couple of passages, and we're out of time, so this will be our last question. But first of all, let's start with the end, right, and then work backwards. In Revelation 20, at the end of the millennium, prior to the destruction of the old heaven and old earth and the, the creation of the new heavens and new earth, uh, we read... Um, that Then I saw a great white... or uh, Sorry, I'll start in verse uh, 10. Um, the devil who deceived them was cast in the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever nothing unclear about that at all right uh, then Jesus it tells us in Matthew uh, in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 or actually Matthew 25 at the sheep and the goats when, when he comes back he says um, those who have not believed in him will be, uh, 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 he will say to them, depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So there is an everlasting fire that is the, the dwelling place of all unbelievers today in torment. We read about this in Luke 16 as well with the rich man and Lazarus. Um, but at the end of the age when the old earth is destroyed, that everlasting fire is then cast into the everlasting lake of fire, which is the final eventuality of all unredeemed. But it's absolutely literal. There's nothing... I mean, you, you can't be tormented day and night forever and ever and cease to exist at the same time, right? So a lot of people today uh, have you know, completely obliterated the plain teaching of Scripture and are suggesting a teaching called annihilationism. That is to say, if you don't get saved, then you just cease to exist. But that is completely contrary to the teaching of Scripture, that you're tormented day and night forever and ever. Jesus, you know, that's, that's what makes the gospel and Christ's uh, atoning work on the cross so powerful, is that, you know, going all the way back to the garden, the wages of sin is death. And death has both a, a physical and an eternal aspect. And that eternal aspect of death is torment. And, but by simply trusting in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation, we can avoid that eventuality so uh, yeah very literal place for sure all right great stuff uh, let's uh, take, stop here we'll continue next week looking at um, the new heavens and the new earth uh, for those of you live streaming the live stream of this message in the service usually kicks off approximately 10:25 to 10:35 mountain time and so we'll see you back then